This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. For Shashin talks, there's a shift in the procedure. You stay standing, waiting for the person who's going to give the teisho. Uh, and then usually everybody bows together. Um, but maybe you can just do standing bows. And then at the same at the end, the person who's speaking stands up, everybody can get up. Of course, it has the disadvantage that you don't get to sit longer and have your knees hurt more. <laughs> I don't know if it was invented for that reason. I <laughs> naively think it has something to do with um, Shashin is an immersion, and that the talk is an immersion. You know. I vow to hear the truth of the Tathagata's words. Uh, if you think about um, Jean Hirschfeld's immensity happening on the window, how do we um, make ourselves available in that way? And of course, make is not the word, you know? You can't make yourself anything. You're, you're part of an organic process. How do we dispose our being in a way that can open, that can realize? Is I not talking loud enough? It's my hearing. Oh, okay. I'll talk a little louder. I'll try to. So to hear the Dharma together, not just simply as a bunch of ideas, but as something that sparks realization. Together. So we bow together, we have a talk, and then we bow together. Many years ago, I had a student at City Center in San Francisco, a very diligent student, working with a lot of stuff. And he told me his background. Um, he was orphaned at a young age, him and his brother. And as teenagers, they became gangsters. And they carried guns and did what gangsters did. Uh, but um, he discovered the, he had a love of English literature, and in particular, poetry. And he decided that he would give up being a gangster and become a poet. 
In particular, he wanted to study with a particular Russian poet, Anna Akhmatova, the extraordinary, wonderful poet. So he went off to Russia and studied with her, and then she died, and he left, and he came back to the States, and he uh, studied English literature, and now he's a professor of poetry and English literature in New York. Life's a funny thing, you know. The twists and turns it takes. It's hard to believe that story's true, isn't it? It was for me anyway. But that's how he told it. And within that vast possibility, um, we can easily find ourselves um, agitating around some little detail. Maybe we pluck it out of our memory. Maybe we find it in our immediate circumstances. Maybe we pluck it out of the future. This is what's going to happen. And that's wonderful. Or that's terrible. Maybe we pluck it out of our dreams. There's a Japanese poet, Shinkichi Takahashi, who writes quite pithy poems. Here's one. I don't take your words merely as words. Far from it. I listen to what makes you talk, whatever that is, and makes me listen. I listen to what makes you talk whatever that is, and what makes me listen. As you sit on your cushion, as you do kinhin, I'm sitting over there, quietly musing on what to say, and a bunch of weird people walked past, all in single file, (laughs) and came in here. You never know, do you, what's going to happen. And yet somewhere inside of us, um, some intensity is playing itself out. And we are relating to it as, well, that's normal. And in some unexamined way, but I have to worry about that and recall that and anticipate that. 
and something in me is moved to look around and like that and dislike that. Or to feel slightly upset or slightly elated. Or all the other things that go on. hold them? How can we hold them? As just as they are, we kind of see the context. This particular is exactly this particular. And it's part of the continuum of something I call my life. Um, It's an expression of this life working itself out. Can we listen to what we say and listen to what makes us say it? So in the seven factors of awakening, the second factor is investigation. The first factor is sati, mindfulness. So in the first couple of talks I was giving, I was trying to present a notion of um, a non-dual approach to practice. We immerse in the process not because there's a fixed goal that needs to be achieved, accomplished, made to happen. Because if we come at it from that perspective, how did we put together that fixed goal? Well, we put together that fixed goal from our own conditioned existence. And if that's how we're operating, then we're perpetuating the propositions of our own fixed existence. And immensely can tap at the window all at once. We'll be too busy to notice. We'll miss the fact I was one of those weird people walking down the street. (laughs) But it felt completely normal. (laughs) It seemed like the thing to be doing. I listen to what makes you talk, whatever that is, and makes me listen. From the perspective of practice, um, whatever happens offers 
an opportunity for awareness. From the perspective of a human life, um, if it's painful, if it's distressing, if it's upsetting, um, if it's alluring, exciting, um, it has a tendency to shift our focus. We tend to immerse in the particularity, the intensity, the allure of it. But the practice of awareness is not to keep our distance, but paradoxically to experience it as fully as possible. And in the experiencing it as fully as possible, we drop the associated stories we have about it. We can walk down the street thinking, look at me, I'm one of those weird Zen people. How terrible. How did I get into this mess? Maybe I need to go to Russia and study poetry. (laughs) Or go to New York (laughs) and teach college. And we just walk down the street. And the street becomes our typical of a place to walk. It's on the earth. It's underneath the sky. Um, The sun is shining. The temperature is what it is. The great paradox of practice is as we move into it, it becomes more itself and in, in one way less I, me, has less ownership of it. That person who went from being a gangster to being a college professor, did he sit down at some point and work with a life coach and and they figured out, okay, first be a gangster, that'll be a good background for poetry, then go to Russia. He said the amazing thing about Russia was everybody seemed to be drunk all the time. He says, and when, you, and when you recognize that, you really, then you understand why nothing seems to work right. You know, the trains don't run right, the buses don't look. Well, of course, if everybody's drunk, this is a wild bike. Right? Yeah. When we take the particular and we put it into the context of me. It's like we're saying, well, what's in it for me? You know, can I feel proud about this? Should I be ashamed about this? 
Is this going to make me happy? Is this going to make me sad? You know. And we can do that with anything, and anyone, and any experience. And we can relate to Zazen, we can relate to awareness in the service of me. Even Shakyamuni struggled with this, you know. His solution, which came from the time, was annihilate me. If I annihilate me, then I won't have the problem that's that's created by this me association. And awareness will arise, and awakening will arise. And he got himself into a lot of trouble. But who doesn't? I once volunteered in a uh, drug rehab center for people who were ex-prisoners. And uh, one of the counselors there told me this. He said, well, actually, um, I was in prison for seven years, so I feel kinship with these people. He said, I was very depressed, and so I started to rob banks. And I thought, it's a very interesting cure for depression, robbing banks. How to get yourself out of bed in the morning. Oh, this is a good day for bank robbing. <laughs> well, unfortunately, he was caught and he got uh, 15 years in prison. It was armed robbery, it wasn't just, you know. And in the process, he uh, got interested in practice. He got out after seven years. He went to college. He got a doctorate in psychology, and he became a counselor. Life's a funny thing. The things we do. And in some ways, Every period of Zazen is a funny thing, the things we do. And in the middle of it, the genius, the nobility of spirit of being a human being, of being capable of seeing it just as it is. That's the great gift we've been given with human consciousness. 
can we dictate, can we predict what's going to happen in a period of sazen? No. Can we predict what's going to happen in the next two minutes inside our own head? No. It's kind of a scary thought. We're that out of control. <laughs> but we're part of a universe of being. You know? We carry within us a DNA that's ancient. We carry within us survival techniques that when we were running around on the savannas made a lot of sense. But we're still using them. It's not the only tools we have now are smartphones. So each period of zazen, each period of walking meditation, each break, each orioki meal, each an inquiry. What's happening now? When I was doing morning service this morning, the light was shining in a certain way, hitting the bottom of the eyelids of the bronze statue. And it looked like the statue had two eyes, little white eyes, because the eyes were lowered. It's quite striking. Or maybe I just imagined it. seven factors of awakening. Um, You have mindfulness, you have investigation, you have effort. This is what This is the beating heart of Sashin. Our collective involvement in mindfulness, investigation, and effort. somehow in the midst of the formidable challenge of that and the temptation to sink into the unresolved intrigues of our life I was once invited to a small gathering with Thich Nhat Hanh in the Mark Hopkins Hotel in San Francisco. It seemed like an utterly incongruous place to have it. 
But one of the things that struck me about it was that he said, I still have troubling dreams about what I experienced in Vietnam when I was a young monk, when the war was going crazy. I thought, wow, this comes from a person who's an extraordinary practitioner. This wondrous, fierce life imprints upon us. And when we come to practice, part of the challenge is, in a heroic way, can we open up and let that be experienced? And I think we all wish that it could be so exquisite as the mere details of gangster, poetry, Russia, college professor. Sounds like a breeze, doesn't it? I left out... um, Substance abuse. Did that happen because he was exquisitely happy? Mm-hmm. Probably not. Um, yes, it's wondrous, but it also asks for a courage. It also asks for an extraordinary patience with your own process and a deep compassion. I would suggest you, they're very helpful, maybe they're essential, the compassion, the patience and the courage. as you take on the unfolding of the life you're living, as you take on, rather than adopting the coping mechanisms you have, known and unknown, in contrast to that, you're going, experience the experience that's being experienced. That's a reckless proposition. If you're not even in control of the next two minutes, what the hell are you going to have to end up experiencing? Joshua said to his teacher, Nansen, he said, um, How do you practice this? How do you practice the way? How do you practice the Tao? How do you do that? And Nansen said, ordinary mind. Mm 
ordinary mind is away. We could say this, let's all spend five years doing a yoga intensive so we can sit exquisitely well, and then let's all do psychoanalysis. A friend of mine says it takes about 13 years if you work on it diligently. And then what else would we need to do? Well, then we should probably study the whole Buddhist canon and several other things, 10 or 20 years. And then we could do shishu. <laughs> or we could recklessly, foolishly <laughs> step in and say, experience the experience that's being experienced. Well, why not? Yeah, why not? You know? Ordinary mind. Life's extraordinary, but ordinary mind um, is this inevitable interplay of details that we're made of. In the very process of Shushin, it's a delicate one. You know, in, in one of the early suttas, it talks about effort. Yeah. And uh, in the sutta, Shakyamuni, he likens, he, he uses a stringed instrument. If it's wound too tight, it doesn't make good music. If it's too loose, it doesn't make good music. To make music, to have the, the strings resonate just right, not too loose, not too tight. So as I said before, especially with physical discomfort, the amazing thing about this practice is that it relates to our karmic disposition, the body, the breath, the mind, the psychology. It relates to it in a skillful way. Will we ever figure that out? No. is neuroscience keeps unfolding and unpacking uh, the brain. It then discovers, oh, there's something called the vagus nerve that runs from the cortex down into the organs, sets forth the sympathetic system, the parasympathetic system. Um, and this is functioning all the time. We engage it 
And as they say in recovery, it works if you work it. There's something extraordinarily beneficial about mindfulness, about awareness. Can we take control of that? Can we dictate how it happens? What the consequences are? No. But when we add investigation to sati, when we add investigation to mindfulness, when we support it with vrilya, the effort. The word vrilya is a very interesting word. It actually has a range of meaning, the whole way from effort to energy. The effort of coming to your cushion, of sitting upright, of paying attention, of noticing what's happening. As we move towards it, as we move towards experiencing, rather than constructing references, associations, it becomes itself. The early name for the Buddha was Tathagata, one who is just themselves, one who just is. When Tim was doing the end of the chant for breakfast, he left out the line, or he almost left out the line, that's we bowed a Buddha. And then he said it, and I thought, why? Why thus we bowed a Buddha? And what is Buddha? But we'll get back to that another day. So, we can casually say ordinary mind, but each of us is our own extraordinary collection of all that stuff. Can you sit with that disposition? What an extraordinary proposition it is to be alive. It's something in a sense, don't bother me with that, I have too much to worry about. There's too much restlessness, unresolvedness in here.
and the immensity tapping at the window goes unheard. To move towards it. To notice the thought that has continuance. Can you notice the, almost like the weight of it, the psychological significance? Or the lightness of it? Can you notice um, Is there something in the theme of that thought that's one of your favorite ways to think? Can you notice in the emotion that's one of your favorite emotional patterns? It's like moving towards it moving towards the suchness of what it is in contrast to building a story around it. As as we move towards it and notice it for what it is, it becomes itself. It becomes an expression of suchness. Conditioned existence creates opportunities for experiencing suchness. And of course, that's a clumsy phrase that seems kind of laborious to even think. But actually, it's utterly intriguing. The intensity and the persistence with which we construct me. And without awareness, assume its authority in defining reality. And nonsense says to Joshua, that's what we call ordinary mind. Can you believe it? We just casually shrug and say, normal. So as Shashin works you over, unpacks you, undoes you, um, I'd offer you this notice, acknowledge, contact, experience. The difference between noticing what's happening and being busy making something to happen. Acknowledge. When the mind is quite busy, the acknowledging is somewhat conceptual. Oh, I'm thinking about what I'm going to do tomorrow. 
contact uh, is it heavy is it light does it stir some emotion um, is it desirable or does it stir up a vention uh, aversion uh, how does it feel in the body is it pleasant or unpleasant do your shoulders tighten does your belly relax does it make the light in the room a little bit more luminescent or does it sort of create a two-dimensional grayness Notice, acknowledge, contact, experience. And when the mind's very wordy, filled with thoughts, yeah, there, there's what's sometimes what we call labeling in there. When the mind's more settled, it's more like a spark. It's more like just an experience. All four of those condense into just experiencing the moment. So can you experientially explore noticing? What's happening now? When the consciousness goes through its cycle and returns to awareness, can you pause there in that moment of awareness? When you notice an impulse to move, can you pause before you move and feel the root of the impulse? Presumably discomfort. Now, whether discomfort's in your body or in your mind, that's an interesting thing to notice. And then can you move very slowly? It's, it's a really helpful thing to do. The practice of that moment is moving. Slowly, attentively. If you, I think if you, if you engage it, I think you'll notice when we move slowly and deliberately, it helps to settle the mind. When you notice, and then you want to rush, there's a kind of a mental disturbance. There's a kind of a judgment. Something's going wrong, and I need to fix it. So Joshu said to Nansen, what is the way? Nansen said, ordinary mind. Joichu said, how will I realize that if I don't try? I like to think of that as, how will I realize that if I don't get in there and make a mess? How will I become a New York college professor 
if I don't become a gangster and go to Russia and study with Anamaktova until she dies. And then to my mind, Nansen had a wonderful Zen response. Uh, grasping it's incorrect, avoiding it's incorrect, creating an intellectual understanding of it is incorrect, um, trying to just numb the brain into not thinking is incorrect. Yeah. But getting in there and making your own mess and learning your own lessons. To trust yourself in that way. Your practice will be practicing with you, with yourself, with your own conditioned existence. How could it be otherwise? And what a great thing to learn about. And through learning about you, you learn about everyone. Where can we learn about patience more thoroughly than attending to the habituated way we behave and react? and think, and feel. Where can we learn more thoroughly about compassion than realizing in all of that behavior there's a sometimes subtle and sometimes blatant disturbance. Sometimes it occurs to me that when we sit to reassure ourselves it's okay, it's okay, it's okay to be here in this room, it's okay to be in this body, it's okay to be living this karmic life. Just breathe. Just let something be as it is. Joshua says, how will I know if I don't try? And I would say to you, how will you know if you don't try? In Shinkichi Takahashi says, I don't take your words merely as words, far from it. I listen to what makes you talk, whatever that is, and makes me listen. Thank you.